This is the last chapter of Jonah, and I thought it would be the last sermon, but you know how it goes. Maybe you don't. Pastor Peter probably knows how you goes. You're working on it, and you realize this is really two sermons the way. And so, so we get two more sermons in Jonah, but we come down to the home stretch, and this is where it starts to finish in spectacular style. Tonight is where the gloves come off. Tonight is where Jonah and Yahweh throw down. They're in this wrestling match, and I would invite you to break out the popcorn, but you already know who's going to win, don't you? But this is here for a reason. This is to teach you about God and Jonah, but also about you. So let us go, and we'll read the full chapter. Um, the first verse starts with it. What is that it? Well, it's the fact that God had mercy on Nineveh. This is God's word. But it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant. For which you do not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not perish, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when you look at all of Jonah, but especially when you come to Jonah 4, you can't help but see how much Jonah and the Lord are, are intertwined in their action. There's a lot of back and forth, and kind of break this up into round one and round two. And round one is going to be looking at this passage from Jonah's side. And, well, what can we say about Jonah? It's not encouraging. In fact, it's concerning. And for Jonah, you see, his response to God's compassion is evil. His response to God's compassion is evil. Look at verse 1 again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, literally, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned him. Now, kids, if you listen carefully, you'll hear a word repeated there, right? If you, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned him. 
What's, what's the word? Evil. Right. You, you, you can respond. Yeah. Right. It's the Hebrew word ra. And it can be used several different ways. And it's a bit of a wordplay throughout the book of Jonah. It comes ten times, nine times as a noun, one time as, as a verb. And it can mean evil as things that are wicked when the Lord talks about the evil of the Ninevites. It can mean calamity or disaster. The storm in chapter 1, the sailor said, tell us about this calamity that's come upon us. It can mean discomfort, as Jonah later in this chapter feels the bite of the scorching sun and wind. Or, as in verse 1, it means it was displeasing. Very similar way of speaking, sometimes it'll say in the Bible, it was evil in the eyes of so-and-so. It means they thought it was wrong, and they're not happy about it. They're displeased. And so Jonah is extremely angry. Well, what caused his anger? Well, here are the string of events. The Lord was concerned about Nineveh's evil. He sent his prophet. The prophet preaches, and Ninevites turn from their evil. The Lord sees that and has compassion, and that seems to Jonah to be a great evil. He hates the Lord's mercy to Nineveh. And so what does he do? Well, to his credit, he prays. Verse 2 is, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a God, gracious and merciful, slow and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. There's that word ra again. Now, this is similar to chapter 2. And in fact, there's, there's parallels between chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. Both times in Jonah's distress, he prays. And in fact, this is the first time since chapter 2 that he uses the covenant name Yahweh. Oh, Lord. But the prayers are very different. If you even look in your Bible, you know, chapter 2 is beautiful. It's, it's indented as poetry. It's, it's like a psalm. It was theologically rigorous. And Jonah really did mean it, though he probably had some blind spots in there. Well, what about this prayer? You know, if I could sum it up in, in one word, it would be something like this. Rah! No, God. No. I, I knew it. I knew it. This is why I went to Tarshish instead of Nineveh. I knew because you're compassionate, you're gracious, and I knew if I came here that you would probably have mercy on these miserable sinners. We've well, got to give him credit. Jonah's honest. God's brought him to the end of his rope and he lets it all out. The Lord's response, do you do well to be angry? Perhaps even more clearly translated, have you a right to be angry? The way the Hebrew is, there's a preposition that, that kind of can turn it inwards. There's an inward focus. Look inside yourself, Jonah. Or as we'd say in the army when, you know, basic training and someone was messed up, check yourself. Check yourself, right? Do you have a right to be angry? And what's Jonah's reaction? I want to die. I'm done. That's it. Life's not worth living. I want it to be over. You know, we thought maybe we could wonder if Jonah had this thought when he told the sailors to throw him into the sea. And I just, I just, now it's clear. And so what does he do? He, he builds this booth. Maybe, maybe he's hoping as he's watching from the outside of the city that Nineveh will relapse and be judged. Maybe he's just waiting to that full 40 days that he talked about in the sermon is over and, and, and just see what happens at the end of it. So he builds this little hut. 
Now, a booth is just a, just a little shelter, help, a little help from the sun and the shade. But there is an irony because booths in the Old Testament were often special places of dwelling with God. If you look up the word, of Suk, or Sukkoth, is, and we actually had the Feast of Booths, um, most of it has to do with that Feast of Booths. That was right after, five days after the Day of Atonement, and all the people were there, and there was this seven-day feast, and they would build these little shelters, and it was reminding them of being in the wilderness and the Lord's protection. And it, even today, Jewish kids love the Feast of Booths, because who doesn't want to camp outside for seven days in like a plywood hut or whatever that they do? Kids think that's fun. Right, so so it's this feast of booth is like this special occasion, and there and there's one time even the tabernacle is called a booth. David, when he wants to build the temple, says, "Shall I dwell in a house, a palace, when the ark of the Lord dwells in a booth?" So it doesn't always mean that, but there's kind of this special connotation of being in God's presence. And it's a little ironic here that Jonah builds a booth as he's once again opposed to God's will. And so is away from his presence. Well, I don't know what to call Jonah's response, but sour grace. Sour grace. Now, have you ever left a piece of fruit somewhere and forgot it? Especially someplace hot. You know, what happens? You could, you know, you could leave it in your backpack or in a car or, you know, especially in the summer and you come back and a little while later, you take something that's, that's good, it's pleasant, it's nourishing, and it turns into something gross and, and disgusting. And sometimes you know, food that's just a little bad is actually worse because then you're not expecting it. You know, I, I sometimes make some, some teff, it's just one of the world's smallest grain as a cereal. You can heat it up and cook it, and, and I, I'm not eat, using dairy right now, so I'll, I'll put some coconut milk. When I came back from the hospital when I'd been away for a while, and I had some coconut milk in the back of the fridge. I said, well, you know, it's, it's okay, it's probably okay, it's, it's in the back, it's, it's been cold, and so I take it out. Yeah, it's fine, it's fine. So I make my teff, and I, I pour it in, and of course, once you heat things up, all of a sudden you can smell it, and I taste it. And it's sour, and it spoils the whole cereal. You've got to start over again. Just, just a little bit can actually sometimes be more dangerous than something that's obviously wrong. Well, Jonah is a great an example of grace gone sour. He, he's received mercy from the Lord. He's received the special privileges of being in the, in the covenant community and God's people, being his prophet. But instead of making him sweet and useful, he becomes angry and bitter. Now, we don't know the final state of Jonah's heart before the Lord. That's not even necessarily the point of this book. But right now, we can say he's in a very dangerous place. There are collision alarms going off all over the place. And what's the problem? Well, Jonah doesn't either understand or accept how God's mercy works. He thinks in some way that he deserves more favor than Nineveh. Humanly speaking, this is fallen thinking, but that makes sense if, if, if you don't understand grace. I'm in the covenant. Even for those people who, 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 are, who are religious, God has a special relationship with me. I'm a prophet. I worship at the temple and sacrifice. He'd even say deep down, of course it's all grace. Of course it's all grace. God's, God, God's done it. It's just my response. But deep down, there's a part of him that says, but really, I deserve it more. And you, we could apply that to us as well. I've grown up in, 
In the OPC, I have grandparents that were founders in the denomination. I, I, I teach Sunday school. I'm an usher. I'm an elder. I, I'm active in the fellowship ministry. Whatever it is, the Lord has worked sanctification into me. And so some way, that although I, would, I accept that I'm a sinner on the inside, I just... I'm respectable on the outside. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be above reproach. And, and the Lord's done that. But then you start to say, but somewhere, it's just it seeps out, it seeps out. There's a little belief somewhere that I am just a little better. So I've contributed some. But by definition, grace and mercy are undeserved. God can give them to anyone he pleases. And, and this is what bothers Jonah so much. This is why he says, I knew, I knew you would be compassionate to Nineveh. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. This is what, what Jonah is quoting in his, in his prayer, his cry to the Lord. And this is when the Lord reveals himself to Moses as he's, he's renewing the covenant and making the new tab, uh, tablets. And, and so after he cuts the tablets of stone in Exodus 34, this is, this is what it says. It's going to sound very familiar, but just listen to this in verse 6. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." Interestingly enough, Jonah just focuses on the mercy part at that point. He knows that God's a God of judgment, but he's, he, it's the mercy part that bothers him right now. This is a beautiful description of our Lord, justice and mercy combined. And the context is extremely important here, because do you know what happened in the story right before this? Why, why are the tablets coming a second time? Why does, why does God have to write them again? It's because after God brought his people out of the desert and said, you're my people, you're special, they worshipped other gods like the pagans. They committed spiritual adultery. They said, we don't want you. And God, in his mercy, spares them and renews the covenant. And so it's that context of, of kindness, of pursuing, that God, uh, he, he utters these words. So Israel acted like pagan idolaters, received God's mercy. You can turn back to Jonah now. And the sour thing is, is that Jonah wanted that mercy for Israel. He was glad about it in the past. So grateful that, that you didn't blot us out with the golden calf. So grateful that you're our God now. He wants that for Israel, but not for Nineveh. Jonah thought it was good that God saved Israel, but bad, evil, that he delivered Nineveh. And you see the disconnect, don't you? One commentator noted the sad irony this way. The very reason Jonah praised God in chapter 2 is now his cause for despair. God delivered him out of the waves and he's singing about it. He's praising God, certain death, that's awesome. But now he's angry that God has done the same for Nineveh. And that's our grace. That's our grace. Well, what does it look like? It, you know, it can be a tricky thing. I mean, you can wear it on your sleeve, but it can also be very sneaky. It can, it can go underground most of the time in your heart. I mean, it can pop up almost out of nowhere, and you say, where did that come from? I mean, you even look at Jonah. It's really not until chapter 4 that you see the true colors come out. It erupts under pressure. 
Well, here are some ways that you can recognize sour grace and even in your own life. I've talked about the first two in the past, so I won't, won't stay there for long. But the first is the lack of repentance. You're really good at seeing other people's sins and pointing them out, but you don't notice your sins and you certainly don't repent of them. We saw that with Jonah in chapter 2. No acknowledgement of the reason why he was under God's discipline. And there's the superiority factor that, that I believe that I'm better than you. Well, here's two new ones that come in chapter 4. Anger. Now, of course, there is a righteous anger. We actually talked about that, being angry at sin, as we were reading Psalm 139 today. There's a righteous anger, but this is not it. You know, you often get angry sinfully when your idols are attacked, when something that's precious to you is, is jeopardized, and you see it that you love it more than God, and it makes you angry. For Jonah, his idol was ethnic pride, that Israel was God's special people, and because of that, they deserved special grace. So what makes you mad? What what brings out the anger? I remember when I was just home from my second deployment. I was getting ready probably about a month from marrying Elizabeth. And I I had seen her once. And I believe my family, minus my dad, because he was working, was going back to New Jersey, North Jersey. We were in Pennsylvania to visit her. And um, my sister, one of my sisters, she she was learning how to drive. You might see where this is going. I'm, I'm you know, anxious to see my bride-to-be. And I remember we were in a city and parked fairly narrowly in. And the cars were coming like every 30 seconds, dear. Can't you pull out? And I think finally I said, just get going. And my mom said, Andrew, you know, white lake, just, just calm down. But, but what caused the outburst? Well, I, I wanted to see my bride so much that I couldn't see that. My sister also needed to learn how to drive. I need to give her patience. Right? Now, that's not necessarily sour grace, but that's an example of anger coming out because there's something that you love that's, that's, that's driven to an extreme. Well, sour grace makes you angry when someone receives something good that you don't think they deserve. Right? It could come in the form of covetousness. You know, you don't particularly like someone and, and you see them receive a blessing of you know, a car or children or a job and it makes you sour. They don't deserve that. You know, it can be very, very subtle. There's, there's a church in the area that looks very different from you. They preach the gospel from what you can see. They're, they seem to be faithful in worship and discipleship and mission, but they're, they're very different. And they seem to be like the happening place. Like God's blessing them. Man, you can could, could get angry about that. Well, why not me? You can mumble about being faithful and all that kind of stuff and whatever. You can see your, your denomination sliding into stagnation and, and you see, well, why, you know, there's an Arminian denomination. Why, why are you blessing them, Lord? They don't even have their theology right. Now, sometimes in these situations, disappointment can be appropriate. God, why aren't you using us? But anger? God, why are you, you know, why are you working through them and not me? They don't deserve your favor. Now, it can be, it can be obvious. Right? Do you resent people who have done real wrong and now truly experience God's grace? You know, perhaps we haven't experienced a whole lot of that at Faith Church. Um, we pray that we would, that, that the Lord would bring people who were formerly outside, you know, their lives were, were a mess from the standard of, of God's law, who come to see Jesus and they're, they're rough and they require work. And what do we do? Do we rejoice in that? 
You know, do, we, do we rejoice? Do, do, are we okay with them as they have some coarse language and coarse living as they're, they're being discipled? And, or do we say, this isn't the place for that? You know, I, don't, I, I come here, I want a nice, clean worship environment and people like me. We pray that God will bring those people. But you know, we can say we want them to come, but the reality can be sometimes different. When, when you see God's grace given to them, will you be joyful or angry? So, so what makes you angry? Does, does anger expose sour grace in your life? Well, then there's bitterness. Kids, what, is it, what does it mean to be bitter? You ever eaten anything bitter? Now, I actually like sour things. If I, I don't drink beer right now just because I'm trying to you know, take it, be as healthful as I can. But you know, I, I love a, a dark, strong beer, like a stout or a porter or sometimes a lager. Right? Something that's, that's really strong. I... I love grapefruit. Um, you know, a lot of people say that's too bitter. Now, I don't like lemon peels. I, I do know a few people who eat lemon peels, but that's too bitter for me. There's a point where whatever it is, it's so strong, it's repulsive. When you're bitter about life, it's like you're always sucking a lemon. Like you have a sour personality about you. And, and it seeps out in your words, in your face, in your actions, or the way that you withdraw from people. And when you become bitter, you're, you know, they're often petty. You know, you root for their downfall, like, like Jonah, you know. Um, you know, he camped out in the desert for 40 days, hoping to see Nineveh die. Who does that? Like, really, don't you have anything better to do with your life? But no, he's, he's, he's hoping for their bad. And, and, and then you despair when they succeed. They don't deserve this. And the sad thing about bitterness, and besides that it's complaining against God, be the first thing, but... It makes you unhappy, right? Look at Jonah. How does his bitterness affect him? Is he a happy person? Would you like to have him over for dinner? This state in chapter four. Right? What? His bitterness is strangling whatever joy he had before the Lord. Peacemakers has a saying that bitterness is the poison you drink, hoping someone else will die. That's what bitterness does. It, it eats inside of you. It's like, it's, it's like a cancer that gnaws away at your body. And, and it does nothing for Jonah but stick him in a desolate booth away from the joy of the Lord. It's not affecting the Ninevites. They're, they're rejoicing in their deliverance. So Jonah is a picture of sour grace. And, and God gives it to you to say, is there, is there a place? You know, where, I, where I'm like Jonah. Where, okay, in general, say yes, but... I, in, in, in specific ways, I don't understand or accept the way that God works. And where does my lack of repentance, my pride, my unrighteous anger, my bitterness make me sour? Where does it strangle my joy? Let me give a, a, an application that's very focused. I pray it will be useful. It's been almost three years since COVID-19 has rocked our world. It's been just over 18 months since Faith Church has been back to normal. And I say we're still kind of riding the ship in some ways. There's still some things that maybe the congregational dinner is one of those, you know, it's just getting back after COVID. And there were diverse opinions about how deal with the virus. And those different opinions created a lot of anger and hurt and divisions even within the church. We, we experienced that. Now, praise God, we made it through that rough time. But let me ask you, do you still have any 
any bitterness or lingering anger towards a brother or sister who took a different position than you? Is, is there a simmering resentment? Have you pulled back from any relationships? Have, have you had, you know, deep down in, in your thoughts, angry thoughts that they come up every while, you know, he hurt me. He was for taking away my freedom or she wouldn't love me. She, she put me at risk. You know, what's, what's going on there? If, if you have those thoughts that you're not dealing with, they're just there. Well, that's, that's sour grace. There's a simmering resentment there. Now, it's far more common heart thoughts that pop up than just this particular example. But when you have that and it's unresolved, you're saying in a sense, you know, I feel wronged by a brother or sister. But if, if you don't take that, if you just sit on it, if you, if you won't, if you won't, if you allow to affect your relationship with them, then you're saying, my hurt is so great that I, I can't reconcile, I won't reconcile with them. Well, what does the gospel have to say about this? Well, it says that you're both sinners. You're completely guilty outside of Christ and completely justified in Christ. And so I ask you then, are you saying that your hurt is greater than the gospel? If, if that's the case, you're saying in some way, oh, oh, I want God's grace and mercy for me, but I'm not going to fully accept God's grace and mercy for them. Oh, yes, they're saved, but I don't have to make the effort to extend the same kind of love even when it hurts. Oh, right, the same kind of love that God extended to me. Right? That, you see how that could be sour grace? Now, is that hard? Yeah. I'm not saying that in this particular topic you might ever agree with the other side if you're on... One of the edges, COVID might always be a sore spot and it's, it's a little ache and that's okay. But consider the freedom that you have in Christ to say, you know, we disagree. And perhaps the hurts and misunderstandings won't go away this side of heaven. But, but I don't have to say that, you know, that we have to be separated because somehow you're not as worthy of God's grace as me. We are co-heirs in this grace of Jesus. We can walk in fellowship. And you can apply that to any hurt, any bitterness, any situation. You might say, well, that sounds beautiful, but I don't know if I can do that. How can I repent? How can I change from sour grace? Well, the next time we go to Jonah, we'll be looking at God's incredible compassion to Jonah's evil. Jonah thought God's compassion was evil. God's response to Jonah's evil was compassion. And we'll see how God can melt your heart as you see his patience. But tonight, let's just simply apply the logic of the good news of Jesus. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a passage I was reading just for my personal worship, and it, and it jumped out at me as I was thinking about this, preparing for this sermon. The Apostle Paul is talking to people who are very proud who do think that in some way they are superior, that they've been gifted, that they are special. And listen to what Paul says to these gifted but young and immature believers in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. (laughs) Now, if you're here today and received the life-changing grace of God, congratulations, you are part of the list of unimpressive people that God has chosen for his glory. Welcome to the club. But God does that so that when he uses us, he gets the credit, so that when he does bring you along in sanctification, your life is cleaned up outwardly by the gospel, you, you don't look at someone else and see them as ugly or undesirable or less deserving of grace. And when we find sour grace towards someone else, we remember that your only hope is the cross of Jesus You needed the perfect Son of God to live and die, and not just want to die like Jonah. No, Jesus chose to die also outside of the presence of the Lord, but to bear your sin and to bear my sin. And you need it as much as that person, whoever that may be, in your mind. And as you understand this, the Spirit transforms you. Let him who boasts Boast in the Lord, not joy, but bitterness and confidence. How can you have sour grace when you realize that you need it most? And so as you examine your hearts for those roots of bitterness, those shoots of anger, as they pop up from nowhere, as the Lord shows them to you, take them before the cross and lay them there. Do you need to reconcile with a brother or sister today? Is there someone that you've moved away, you've, you've stopped pursuing because you thought in your heart, they don't deserve it. I challenge you, move towards them. Root for someone's good, pray for their good. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, in, in, in some ways we are all like Jonah. Our hearts... Sin just shoots from it. We need to be cleansed, and that happens at the cross. We are so grateful, as we will see next time, the way that you pursue us, the way that you are patient, the way that you are good to us. Lord, would you make us a people that are growing sweeter and more lovely, that people that reach out, people that rejoice when you are at work in others, people who rejoice that the gospel is preached no matter what. At the end, it's your glory and your honor. And when that happens, when we are concerned about that, then how can we, too, not be a happy and fulfilled people? So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're